we have five core values in our in our uh, in our company, and one of them is say what you're thinking. So, and and that's another constraint in Blairtopia of the five constraints. If I could wave the magic wand, anytime you're in a dealing with a client or a prospective client, just say what you're thinking. Take a minute to think about how you would phrase it kindly, but say what you're thinking. So who was that? Who was just speaking? Well, before I answer, let me frame this conversation by first telling you a little story and giving it a little context. Two years ago, I was in Hawaii and giving a talk. It was in front of a whole gathering of advertising folks for the Paley Award Show. And during my talk, we got into this conversation about what do you do when clients prescribe solutions to you? This is a place all too familiar to a lot of people in the creative space when somebody's dictating to you what you should do and how you should do it. And to which I responded, this is what I say to my clients. You're probably right, but let's make sure. And afterwards, my fellow panelists came up to me and said, that was a great piece of advice. They don't teach this stuff in school. It's not like you could read in a book, right, Chris? And I smiled, a little guilty smile. And I said, well, actually, I did read it in a book. So who are we talking to? You probably figured it out already. And if you've been a fan of this channel, you already know. It's none other than Blair Enns, the guy who wrote The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, a book which I have to say is one of the seminal books that have changed the way I do business. And if you think I'm really smooth, you got to go to the source. Here he is. So I'm Blair Enns, the founder of Win Without Pitching. Win Without Pitching is a sales training organization for creative professionals around the world. I'm, uh, I see myself as a recovering consultant. I was a <laughs> new, new business development consultant for about, uh, let's do the math, about 12 or 13 years. And about three, three plus years ago, I pivoted the the um, the company from a solo consulting practice with a little bit of admin support to a scaled and scalable training organization. So now we do um, sales training for creative entrepreneurs and their teams uh, around the world uh, via the Win Without Pitching program. Mm. And before all that, what what did you study in school? What what's your background? Uh, I was, uh, so I grew up in the center part of Canada. I live in a remote mountain village in British Columbia, Canada. I've always lived in Canada, but I've done work a lot of places, primarily the U.S. But my background is um, I was academically expelled from a really poor liberal arts university up in Canada after the first year where my grade point average was well below one. <laughs> <laughs> They kicked you out of school? <laughs> well, I needed, they don't, this school doesn't kick many people out. <clears throat> um, and so I needed uh, written permission from the dean to attend the second year. And I was sitting, along with a friend who was in the same predicament, I was sitting in the dean's outer office. The last day that you could get, you know, basically going for an interview and the dean would, you know, kind of stamp, okay, we'll let you back in for another year if you mm. kind of play the game. And we're sitting there in the outer office and she's... It's taking time to get to our names, and we look across the street, and there's a travel agent. We've got our tuition money in our pockets. This is, uh, I don't know, this would be 1985, I think, and, uh, or 84 maybe, and we've got our tuition money in our pockets, and there's a, there's a travel agency across the street that's got this uh, student flight pass where for the rest of the summer, and uh, you could fly like, anywhere this now defunct airline flew. So we thought, you know what? Screw it. Let's take our money, not go to university. Let's buy a flight pass and then travel around the country a bit. So um, that's what I did. And eventually I went back to a, to a community college and took a two-year business development diploma, or sorry, not business, uh, business administration diploma program. And I crammed that two-year course into three years and still almost didn't pass because I was a credit short and I, I just did, I was bad at math. So you can see I have this stellar academic career, <laughs> which predisposed me to do nothing but to stumble into the world of advertising, So which I did. Oh. And the, iron, the irony is, like, here I am. I'm 50 years old. I have four kids. I have um, two kids in university and one who's about to graduate from high school. 
and they've all just told us in the last little bit the two who are in are dropping out and the one who should be going into university he's well he may be he's on the fence he might he's, he might not be going this year so we were going from three kids in university to uh, to none mm. so we're so you know it's it's interesting it's kind of coming around it's coming back to yeah i'm just reliving a little bit of my that part of my life right now it's interesting as it comes back around and are you so yeah my my academic career isn't all that stellar and, right. and the irony is i consider myself a learner i'm a i am mm -hmm. a lifelong learner and are you conflicted when it comes to maybe giving advice to your own kids given the path that you've taken yourself no no when my daughter who's in a very good university out east and she said you know i'm thinking of she said, a university is crushing my spirit. I'm thinking of dropping out. We were both my wife and I said, good for you. That's fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's yeah. great. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about your your transition into advertising. You've kind of had this eclectic path moving around, and then you worked in advertising as a copywriter, art director, or what did you do? Uh, as an account executive. So oh, I came in through, okay. through, through the business side. When I, so when I finally graduated from the business administration program, um, <laughs> I can't think about those times without smiling or laughing. When I finally graduated, I'd done some sort of race, a triathlon or something. I took the summer off. I did a triathlon. I sat down after doing this triathlon, first and only one I'd ever done. I opened up a newspaper. It was that day. I think I was still wearing my gear. And I saw this ad for an advertisement for a public relations firm. And I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. Because when I, when I took business administration, it was a toss-up for me between um, writing, taking creative writing, and taking business. And I thought at the time, if you're going to do creative writing, there are a couple of different channels. And I was thinking of being a journalist. I was really affected by, I'm a little too young for Watergate, but after the fact, I was really affected by the book, All the President's Men. And I really saw journalism as the highest calling in a democratic society. And I was thinking about, did I want to be a journalist? And for, for your younger members of your audience, journalism used to be a profession. <laughs> <laughs> now it's an entrepreneurial lifestyle, which I think is even better. But I thought, yeah, you know, I, I really want to be a writer. If I, the question, like, who, who, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? Or like, who, who do you really see yourself as? And to me, I was a writer. Mm -hmm. And education-wise, I was at this pass, uh, path, and I thought, you know, I, I don't know that I can make any meaningful amount of money. Not that I'm driven or I've ever been driven by money, but I, I, don't, know that, I don't know that I can earn a living as a with a creative writing degree or diploma so i went down the the business administration I see. path um yeah that, and sorry i'm i'm taking us down a, a completely different path from where you wanted to go but that was the that was the that was the choice that i had to make at that moment and uh and then so after i run this race i'm thinking okay writing business business and then the pr i saw this pr job an account executive with a pr firm and i thought that makes perfect sense um so i applied for the job and i they've said to me um i didn't i didn't get it i came in second they said you know what you should go get six months of sales experience and then come back and i thought sales i hate sales i'm not going to get uh -huh. six. i'm never coming back. and then one day they called me and they said hey we bought an ad agency we want to talk to you about coming to work for us in advertising. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go do that, do that for a little while, and then maybe I'll make the switch over to public relations. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of fell in love with um, advertising. And then later on in my career, I really started to identify more with des the design profession than the advertising profession. Mm -hmm. But when, when you're a young person getting into advertising, and that, that used to be another profession, kids. <laughs> ad agencies i know they're still around in different forms but <laughs> okay so this uh i guess it's relevant for us to bring up the reason why we're having this conversation in the first place and my introduction to you funny kind of side story is i was lecturing somewhere and somebody had said chris you got to read this book the win without pitching manifesto no people recommend books to me all the time and admittedly i'm not a prolific reader like i i sit down and read bits and then i get distracted and then i lose my place and i start over so I go ahead and order your book, and then it sits on my shelf for a while. And then somebody mentions it again. It, it takes a little bit of prodding for me. I'm, I'm not that quick with that kind of stuff. And then finally, I sat down. I'm like, this is one of those uh, sensational titles, right? The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Because yeah. in our line of work, 
uh, in terms of a motion design studio, it's kind of the cost of entry is you have to pitch for advertising commercial work, at least in the United States. And I was thinking, there's no way this book can tell me I can't pitch. These are the rules that are written and yeah. you, you can't enter the game. So with some kind of resistance, I read the book and it really transformed my thinking. And and I, th I thought first, this is not perhaps uh, applicable to this industry that we're in, but it's applicable to everything else I'm doing and I want to get out of that industry. So that began the spark. And I'm just curious, I have lots of questions about the book. When did you write the book? Why did you write it? And the follow-up to that is, how has writing it changed you and your business? Yeah, so when did it, it comes? I'm I'm not very good with the past and in mm -hmm. particular with dates, but okay. I know I know it was published in July of 2010. Therefore, I deduce that I wrote it sometime before then. Okay. Um, <laughs> and people ask me, well, how did you write it? Like, what, when did you write, etc. Mm -hmm. And I I don't remember. Um, I remember finishing it. It took me about a six month sprint of writing every day in the morning to finish it. But I kind of wrote it in fits and starts. And the genesis of the book was um, a newsletter, like a, a blog post that I wrote um, a few, at least two years, maybe three years before it. And the 12 proclamations were a little bit different. They were a little bit out of order. But that was the genesis of the idea. And I remember when I published that post, I'm, I'm a big fan of manifestos. I think one of the most important books ever written is the Curtis Creek Manifesto, which is a graphic it's not really a novel, but it's mm -hmm. a graphic book on fly fishing. Um, mm. And I think, you know, not so much Marx, but I, you know, I loved, especially as a young man, I loved the books of axioms and, and uh, dictums and, you know, what, you know, these like brief statements of uh, uh, like the Analects by Confucius or anything by Nietzsche or a little bit of the tone of Marx. So I, uh, when I was writing this blog post, I thought, you know, I want to, I want to try on a different voice. I want to do a like over the top manifesto-ish type voice. And so you, you should always, when you're publishing, you should always be nervous before you hit publish. You should be, you should be pushing yourself to the end of your comfort zone. And that was the one where I thought, oh, this, this tone is different. <clears throat> I really wanted to try it on, but I thought this might just blow up on me. And then I got all of this really positive feedback to the tone. People saying, I've printed this out and I've tacked it to, to my door. And I love that because to me it was like uh, Martin Luther, the was it, 96 Theses nailed to the church door. Right. Um, so I, kinda, I just kind of kept running with that idea. And so the tone went over well. People were really kind of inspired by the tone and you know some people the tone you know that kind of manifest we shall we will etc that type of language and tone they you know, it doesn't sit well with them um it's too authoritarian it maybe yeah and maybe idealistic mm -hmm. uh it does have that kind of ring to it it does i wanted to write a yes you can book not a here's how to book a friend of mine read first came out he read it he said yeah it's a pretty good book my only beef is there's not much like here's what to do in the book and right. i said well yeah I, I yeah i know that i see that and it was my intention was for you to be able to read this in two hours on an airplane put it down and be determined to, to see a different way and be determined to go find the path to that way that's what i, I wanted i wanted resolve Mm. After after the reader was done, I wanted him to put the book down and say, "You know what? This is this is possible." This originally started out as a blog post or a newsletter. Yeah, this is so. This is on the internet somewhere, right? It may have been taken. It might 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 be on our site. I think it was called 12 Proclamations for the for a new year or for the new year." And I'm not I'm not even sure if it's still on our, our site. If you go to winwithoutpitching.com and click on the articles link at the top of the page and then scroll down to December 2006, you'll find an article titled 12 Resolutions for the New Year. Okay, so you wrote the blog post. It, it kind of was a little risky, and then people really responded well to it. And then at some point, a couple years later, that's the genesis and the foundation for the book, right? Yeah. And was there something that was prompting you to write the book then? Something happening in your life, personally, professionally? Because I have ideas for books, but I've not taken that step. I've not passed the tipping point on that. Yeah, I'm 
I'm pretty happy with the books that I haven't written over the years. <laughs> um, and I remember like when I f first became a consultant, I felt the pressure to publish a book within the first couple of years. And I did publish a book. It was self-published. I charged $1,000 a copy for it. Mm. And, and somebody would order it and I would print it off of my laser printer and, and package it up and send it. Um, and that was a very detailed how-to book back in the days when I didn't know a lot of yeah, I mean, it was helpful. Uh, I'm sure it was helpful to the people who bought it. But if I think of the advice I was giving 15 years ago versus the advice I'm giving now, it'd be quite different. So um, I did publish a bit of a how-to book in the early days that formed the framework of my consulting practice. And then I'm not... Uh, and then again, I was... I, uh, I did feel the pressure after a couple of years, and I see others who are new into whatever profession they are, any kind of expertise business, they feel the pressure to publish a book. And I always say what a friend of mine said to me is like, you don't need, just need to have something to say. You need to have a point of view. And if mm. you don't have a point of view, there is no point in publishing your book. There are so many books of lists out there of do this, do that, do that, without a point of view. And that's the, I think in the, uh, in the in the world of content marketing or knowledge marketing or whatever you want to call it, thought leadership, the biggest challenge right now is everybody is publishing and so many people are lacking a point of view. So I'm really happy that I waited until that book so that I could have a strong point of view. Yeah, it does seem like uh, in the consulting space, the, the playbook is to write a book to establish your credibility and your expertise. And yeah. so you kind of resisted that for a little bit and then you formed this book. Now, I, I got to ask this question. So it's been six, seven years now since you wrote the book and it's been published and it's sitting right next to me right here. Um, how has writing the book changed you personally, professionally? I'm not sure how it's changed me personally. I'm like seven years later, I'm actually still, I'm still surprised at how happy I am with that book. Mm -hmm. I'm I don't go back. I've never sat down and reread it. I've flipped through it from time to time um, because somebody's asking me something about it. Um, but I'm I'm happy that you know it's it's in its fourth printing now. It keeps going. Sales keep have always been steady, and they've been steadily increasing. So even seven years later, sales they've they've been steady like a ship, but steadily slowly going up. Mm. Um, and my goal when I wrote that book was to write a timeless book. So it looks timeless. Um, it re there's nothing in it that would be outdated at any point, really. And it's my full intention that that book will outlive me. I want it to be in print long after I'm gone. And that's mm -hmm. the book I wanted to write. And so, you know, how has it changed me? I feel like I've accomplished that goal. I've written that book. And so that that you know that's put a lot of pressure on the books that are coming after this, and I've got one that should be out already, um, and I keep going back and making it better, and I am I've even quit talking about the the date um, because that's just creating unnecessary pressure for me. And I I, I say to people who feel pressure to write their first book, um, you think you, you think that's pressure? <laughs> the follow up, <laughs> wait, <sequel. laughs> it's the sophomore album, right? Right. And I think the reason I feel so much pressure about it is I'm I'm really happy with that first book. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm also because I have such a long time horizon on this. I'm pretty okay with this second book being months, even if it ends up being a year late. I don't think it'll be that long, but um, even if it ends up being that far behind, I'm. It's vital to me. Like a friend of mine said before she died, she was a novelist. She said, "Blair, you can't unpublish." She published a novel, and in the end. Um, uh, about a year later, she showed up at the door with a new version of the book. She had rewritten it, basically backed out all the editor's advice, changed the title, spent her own money to print it, handed it over, and she'd printed 100 copies for friends, and she said, this is the book I really wanted to write. So mm -hmm. when, when I asked her to do a first pass of the manifesto, um, she kept saying to me, Blair, you can't unpublish. You can't unpublish. Um, so if you want to write a timeless book... You want to get it right. If you're writing a timely book, that's far less important. If you're writing about technology, 
Yeah, that's it. You you should move quick and get it right. out there in the marketplace quickly. But those aren't those aren't the books that I'm interested in writing. It's not really relevant to my audience. I mean, I could write a timely book on the technology of business development, but other people would do that better than me. Mm. Well, you've already now um, preemptively answered one of the questions from Washutosh, who's asking you about like when's the pricing book coming out, and it'll come out when it's ready, right? Yeah. In fact, we I've. I've put forward dates. It'll be out in this day. <laughs> and then I've just said to people, nah, we're, I'm, quit. I'm not talking about dates. The book is called Pricing Creativity, um, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. It's being published by Rock Bench, who published my first book. <clears throat> and they're a great publisher partner, David C. Baker, who owns that mm-hmm. print, is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm getting no pressure from my publisher. Uh, I'm getting pressure from readers, and that's fine. That's good, healthy pressure, but it'll... It'll be out when it'll be out, and uh, it'll be good. It'll be something I'm very proud of. And I'll, this is one more thing I'll say about it. It'll be the only pricing book in the world that is priced according to the principles in the book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying it's going to be very expensive? There are going to be very expensive options of that book, mm. and then there will be less expensive options. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm going to bring you back to something about the book and an idea there. And this is a quote from your site. Uh, The peculiarities of the creative personality that makes selling difficult for people in an ideas business. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, there's a few of them. But the big one is um, creativity is really, and some people might argue against this, but I'm taking my cue from uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the author of Flow, and I think his second book is called Creativity. So he studies happiness and creativity. And the, we talk about a flow state. He coined that term. And he says creativity is, is not the ability to write or draw. That's what he refers to as personal creativity. Creativity is the abil- ability to see. to see. It's the ability to bring perspective to problems, to see things that others can't, or look at things from angles or perspectives that others, for whatever reason, are unable to. So if that's your strength, if you are a creative person, then you are by nature drawn to the problem that you have not previously solved. You get bored easily because your strength is seeing things differently and solving new problems and problems that others can't really solve or don't don't look at the same way as you. you you're constantly looking for something new and different. That's the hallmark of a creative personality. An expert, on the other hand, is somebody who... Um, benefits from repeated observation and repeated application. So to build deep expertise, you need to study the same sorts of problems over and over again so you start to see patterns. So this idea of creativity and expertise, it's almost like a creative expert is almost a paradox. Uh, Maybe it is a paradox. The idea because, so this duality of being creative, being open to bringing your your wonderful enlightened perspective to bear on different problems is at odds with your business's need for you to focus. And that conflict or paradox or duality, whatever you want to, however you want to frame it, that is at the heart of most creative people's challenges with selling. And Mm. another, another issue would be, um, the, the idea of a craftsman producer, so you think of marketers and producers. Marketers look at the market and say, hey, nobody's doing X. So they say, I'm, I'm going to build a business that kind of meets this need for X. And so their challenge is production. So I see the opportunity in the market. I see the hole. Now I have to figure out how do I go cobble the resources together, build something, hire people, etc., to serve that market. That's how marketers think of business. The other end of the perspective is a producer who says, I know how to make X, so I'm going to launch a business making X, and I'm going to hope that there's a market of people who will pay me what I need to be paid for my X. And that I've just described 99% of the design firms and design-based businesses on the planet. These people see themselves as designers, and I love designers, and they say, I want to design for a business, for a living. I'm going to open my own design firm, and I'm going to hope that there's enough people out there. There's a market big enough to pay me what I need to be paid. So you can come at sales from a producer's point of view. A producer's challenge is marketing, and a marketer's challenge is production. And if you are selling, if what you're producing is really the, 
if you have deep personal attachment to it, if you see yourself as a craftsman, now you're a craftsman producer, and the thing that you're selling, in our case, ideas and advice, the thing that you're selling is highly personal to you. So if you get rejected, it's a personal rejection. So that's another layer that makes selling difficult for the creative person. Well, how do you, um, if, I, if I see myself as a craftsperson, somebody who is very passionate about doing what it is that I do, and I even think of myself, I'm just saying, as an artist, this is the, the perspective that a lot of people uh, in the design field kind of see themselves as. How do you reconcile those differences and that paradox that you mentioned? Because I, I get, I see the problem. It's very clear the way you outlined it. So how do I overcome that? You know, beginning at the beginning or at the highest level is should asking the question, should your art be your business or should it be a hobby? That's no, and there's no writer. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a personal answer. So you, you decide. Um, I've known a lot of agency principals or owners of other creative businesses, design firms, et cetera, who decided to shut it down, go get a job and paint. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I can think of some principals I know now who are people who are maybe struggling in our program where I think, you might be better off getting a job and getting your artistic needs met elsewhere. So that's, that's a question, and that's a, that's a question for which there's only a personal answer that's right for you. And I'm not suggesting that, that there's a kind of a standard answer for anybody. Um, and then after that, it's a matter of, it's really a matter of sacrifice because, you know, the first issue of focus. So to be an expert, you need to focus because you, you need to accrue the benefits of solving the same types of problems over and over again. But focus is at odds with your personal needs for creativity. It's you really need to trust. You, you need to trust me or these, these words that I'm about to say. And you need to trust yourself and you need to trust that this next point is true. And the, the point is that... You, your fear of walking away from all these really cool things that you might do are, is unfounded because the world is so big. So you're thinking of right now you're a generalist. Well, you could work for anybody doing any type of work, right? And the possibilities are really inspiring. But business-wise, it's really limiting. So you need to trust that when I say pick a door, you're – you're, the metaphor I use, I think I talk about this in a book, in the book, is you're standing in a room full of doors and being a highly creative person, uh, creative and curious problem solver, you want to know what's behind every door. So you've structured your business so that you can open every door. And I'm standing behind you and I'm saying, no, you, you need to pick a door. You pick mm -hmm. a door, you walk through that door, and you never look back. And your hesitation is you think that on the other side of that door is one boring, empty, gray room where surely you will be stifled to death, right? But that's not what is on the other side of that door. What's on the other side of that door are more doors. More, let's say more doors, <laughs> not more door. <clears throat> more doors than you can ever imagine. It's we'll play some scary music while world. you say this. <laughs> it's a beautiful world. It's like you crawl into, I'm asking you to crawl into a crevasse or a niche, right? And you're thinking, oh, it's so small in there. It's so tight in there. And you, and you get in there and it opens up like Narnia. You need to trust that there is a rich, diverse world where you can express yourself creatively on the other side of that niche positioning. And if you, if you can, if you can be, truly believe that, then you're going to be okay. Wow. I mean, you're, you're, you're like preaching to the choir here because I fully believe in that. There's a lot of things that I run into in terms of how designers look at the work that they do. I think some of them feel guilty for charging money for something that they truly enjoy. Like if I, yeah, uh, you know, there's a hobby of mine. Like if I, uh, like, I like fishing. I like salmon fishing. Right and, on. For somebody, for me to charge somebody to do what I love seems like a strange concept. But I love in the book how you talk about you know, one of the motivations that you can think about of charging more is to provide better customer service. And I love that. And that helps people figure that thing out because the nature of the creative person is to try to give more of themselves to over-deliver. Mm -hmm. And the, the conflict comes in when they feel like 
they're being taken advantage of, something that they've designed themselves. Yeah. So my trick is always to charge as much money as the client's willing to pay and more. And that way, yeah. when they call me, and I, I love your, your uh, what you say about the, the, the telephone test, like if they call you, are you happy to answer it or not? Yeah. And so I try to get in that position. So intellectually, I totally understand what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, conflicted in that way. But emotionally, I got to feel like people are just holding on very tightly to this idea that their art is everything and specializing is going to kill their creative soul. Charging money is going to cheapen the entire process. It's going to devalue what they do as a, as a creative human spirit. I mean, how do you respond to the? I mean, give me your, your tough love coach talk here. Say something like that's going to really wake them up. Now, you may want to listen close because what Blair is about to say is really important. A lot of us have this zero-sum idea around money and the economy. So some of the guilt people feel around charging a lot of money is the idea that if I have a dollar, somebody else is short of one, right? I can only have a dollar if somebody else, if I take it away from somebody else. But if you stop and think about the people in your life that you know, and you think about how they earn their money, um, you realize that most people earn money by helping people. Very few people that you know earn money by taking it from others or taking advantage of people. I mean, granted, a third of the world's economy is currency trading, where there's a billion dollars of currency traded per second, and it adds no value to the planet at all, or almost no value. And so there's, I accept there is a level of parasitic um, money making in the world. And it's not just limited to currency trading, but it's kind of the big, it's like, I mean, we could go into this macroeconomic thing on um, quantitative easing and all the money that the government prints, not just the US government every month and what, what's going on there. And I, I went down that rabbit hole when I was trying to understand money in the research for this book. So we could get into all that. But w the point I want to make is you realize that you make money by helping people and you really need and you need to understand that wealth is created through trade and you are selling what's known as a non-rival asset. So which means that if I if I sell you, I'm holding my the beautiful Faber-Castell fountain pen um, that I just bought my last trip to Spain, and I could sell you this pen, Chris, and then you would have it and I wouldn't have it. But I could sell you an idea, and then you have the idea and I have the idea mm. too. So now it's no, nobody's short of anything, and you've given me money, and you've given me... Uh, I've By selling you the idea, I've created value for you. And let's say... Um, I've charged you $10,000. By willingly paying me $10,000, you are acknowledging that I am creating more than $10,000 in value for you. So uh, trade is what makes the world go round. Trade is what, wealth is what drives uh, population growth curves down. Wealth is what pulls, obviously pulls people out of poverty, but it fixes all these other social issues. And it, and I'm not a libertarian. I don't think that like the market solves every problem, but we create wealth really only through trade. And you're, you're, you need to acknowledge and understand that you people are willingly giving you money, even if they'd rather pay you less. The fact that they're handing over that money is an acknowledgement that you are creating more value for them than you are capturing for yourself, right? You're essentially ca capturing some of the excess value that you are creating for the client. And you don't need to understand, and you know, a lot of people are just working intuitively on the economics in that moment, but you're creating this what's known as a double thank you moment where you hand the work over to the client, the client says thank you, the client hands you the check, you say thank you. You're each thanking each other and acknowledging that this was a worthwhile transaction and we would both do it again. And I want you to look at those that check and all of those dollar bills or whatever your currency is and think of each individual dollar bill as a certificate of appreciation. So 
the more value you create in the world, the more value you should be able to capture for yourself and you should view the value, the economic value that you are capturing for yourself as a measure of how much value you are creating for others in the world. Woo. <laughs> I, 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 even, I love the double, double thank you. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. I thought you were going to say the double thank you was they thank you for the work because you've done something wonderful. And the, the other thank you, here's, a, here's an amazing uh, like, uh, check that I wrote uh, to pay you for your services. So uh, that was great. I have a bunch of business questions for you. Maybe we can just do this more like lightning round. And then I got to get in the, the, the three questions I have left from the audience. Okay. 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 So what is your business model today? And what's the average size of engagement? Like, what's your minimum level engagement? Yeah, um, great use of that term. Uh, so the business model is we are a full training company. I went from a solo consulting practice. I launched some training programs. And then I quickly realized that you can't have a productized services firm and a customized services firm in the same business. So I had to pick one over the other. For those of you that might be curious, a productized service is when you take a product, service, or product feature that your company has previously provided on a custom basis and turn it into a standard, fully tested, packaged, supported, and marketed product. Customized service is when you provide products or service in a flexible manner, which can be readily adapted to suit a client's specific needs. And it was really my exploration of the subject of value pricing that I realized I really wanted to be a value price based consultant, but I felt like given where I live, I couldn't really afford to do, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it properly because I live in such a remote, remote, remote place. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to charge based on value, then I would have to have these uh, more open engagements with a smaller number of clients. And I needed to be able to say, okay, I'll be on a plane. I'll, I'll be there tomorrow the day after. And that's just really hard for me to do. So I went the other way, fully productized. We're a training company now. And I am just, I have two, so I was a coach in this training business and I've, uh, letting my classes go. I have two private clients left and in four or five months, I will no longer be a coach. We have four other coaches in the program, um, who do the coaching. So it's, a, it's all done via the distance. Uh, you can go through the program either completely self-directed. You can go through in a peer group with a virtual in a virtual classroom with other owners of independent creative businesses that's led by a coach, or you can do a private class where we the classes are just people in your firm, and those are typically for larger or more distributed um, organizations. So right mm -hmm. now, those are the three different ways that you can go through the program, and so that's what we are. We're a tr we're a training program. Okay, and then what's the minimum level engagement there? Uh, minimum level of engagement is $5,000 for the self-directed or $500 a month if you want to finance it over 12 months. And the minimum commitment to the program is one year. I've built curriculum that goes on in perpetuity. So my vision is um, you'll come, you'll join the program, and um, like the Hotel California, you'll check out, but you'll never leave. There, we will <laughs> provide value until your dying days. Now, that's probably not going to happen, but that's the goal. There's, there's, there's a curriculum as long as you want to stay in the program, but there's really two years of core curriculum. Um, but your minimum requirement is one year, so you show up. Sign up for a year, and then we ask you to come back for a second year. After two years, um, if you want to go deep into some topics, that's what we start to do in year three. Okay. So uh, here's my rapid-fire business questions for you. Yeah. Um, how many books do you sell a year? What's the average? Uh, I can do so 100, uh, 150 a month. So okay. what is that? Whatever that is. Whatever that is, times 12. Yeah. <laughs> and growing. There's three types of people in the world. Those who <laughs> right. can count and those who can't. <laughs> I'm the middle one. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see here. How are you currently building awareness? And I, I love, too, that in your discussion about your own business that you, too, have had to make the tough choice of being a consultant or a productized business. And yeah. You're, you're following your own advice. And I can see that all over your site that you follow your own advice. You write a lot and you establish your expertise that way. You've chosen a niche and you're the expert for which there is no replacement for. Uh, I'm, I'm curious right now in the 21st century, here we are in 2017, what are you doing to build awareness? I mean, I'm looking at your conversion funnel. Yeah. I'm looking at how uh, the customer journey comes to you and then ultimately why they make a purchase. So what are you doing out there to build awareness? 
Well, for many years, I would, I would write. I would write once a month. And then last year, the year before, I think it was last year, I did an experiment of writing every week. Um, and now my writing is being directed to other places. So it's, it's changed over the years as you know, I get bored or we experiment with things. But we're in 2017, the focus for building awareness. I'm launching two podcasts, one fairly shortly here mm-hmm. and one uh, closer to the summer. And then there's the pricing book that's coming out, and I'm doing a, I do a lot of speaking. And then once the once the pricing book is uh, out in the world, then I'll go back to writing uh, a few more, uh, a, f- a little bit more regularly on the on the blog on the site. Okay, do you only publish your writing and your thoughts on your site, or do you distribute it through Medium or some other format? I. I've experimented with um, Medium a little bit and publishing on LinkedIn and other places, um, but it's primarily on our site. Okay. Yeah, I you know it's like I uh, I see so there's the there's the win without pitching broader world the stuff that we push out into the world for free and then there's the inner the gate the paid gate in the inner circle and mm-hmm. very consciously over the last two years and over the next two years. I'm pulling more and more of our content in behind that wall. As you know, our awareness is pretty good in most parts of the English-speaking world right now. Um, awareness and traffic aren't really an issue. So we're, I, f- I feel like the, the people who pay us every month or every year, they're part of our family and they're part of the inside uh, group like we're part of the conspiracy that we're <laughs> that we're the Illuminati, <clears throat> the Illuminati. And I feel like I my as more time goes by, I want to deliver more value to those people mm-hmm. um, and spend less time trying to get people into the top of the fun. That's kind of taking care of itself now. And I really our focus is really people who pay us money. We need to take care of them and feel I like see. make them feel like they're special. So we're doing even even events now. I only do events. Like I'll do somebody else's talk, a talk somewhere else, but in ter- like create, creating a win without pitching event, which we do one or two a year, they're only available to people who are in the program now. And that's in person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have an annual win without pitching summit that's available to just the firms who are in the program. We did the first one last year in Vancouver. This one this year is in uh, October in Toronto. Mm. And we do a couple of other uh, meetups, et cetera, throughout the year in different places but uh they're only available to people in the program so that's just part of like pulling the a lot of the valuable stuff in behind the wall and making it available only to the family right well speaking of it um how big is the inner circle right now how many people are in that group they're about um just over or just under 80 firms in the program april 24th is when the next program starts so we're already onboarding some firms for for that program Mm. Uh, that that program period okay and how how big is your team right now there are four of us soon to be five of us here and then one two three four distributed coaches so we're at eight about to be nine so four in the office and then the rest remote yeah i see so it's kind of split right yeah, it is. I, we live in a, a little village in the mountains in the middle of nowhere with less than a thousand people. So, um, talent's oh, that little, is remote. Oh my gosh, talent's a little hard to come by. Yeah, I think this makes sense, but I'm gonna ask it right. I think you already told us, but how do you scale your business right now? Uh, how do we scale? You know, the 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 biggest thing about scaling a productized service business. And it's, if, you, if your listeners want to go to YouTube and look up my talk that I did at Inbound this last year, it's called Price the Client, Not the Job. Mm-hmm. Um, I began that talk by talking about the differences between a productized business and a, a productized service business and a customized service business. And uh, they're so different. Um, so how do you scale a productized service business? The biggest thing that you can do and that probably we focus on right now is retention, retaining people from year to year, because retention is proof of delivery of value, right? So the better a job you do of delivering value to your current client base, the less reasons you're going to give them to move on, um, then the less you have to sell at the at the other end. Right. So it's uh, it's it's wiser and smarter to 
keep work on keeping the clients you have versus chasing new ones. Yeah, I mean, I I would really love to be at the place where there's only so we have three program periods, onboarding periods per year. In mm -hmm. two of them, we usually sell out what new capacity we set aside. And I would really like to be at the place where we sell out our capacity. It's like managed, steady growth. There's not a lot of sales pressure. Um, and we sell out our capacity every time. And if you want to get in, you have to get in line fairly early. That's the type mm. of bus business I would like to build. And I'm only going to be able to build that business if we offer incredible value to the people who are in on the inside and we're three years in and retention you know, was pretty low in the beginning and it's pretty good right now but it's not yeah you know, i want to get closer and closer to perfect to 100 percent, knowing we'll never get to 100 percent. but that's right. the goal is is getting closer to that and and then what's the what's the exit for you are you thinking about an exit my exit is death really yeah i i mean i do a talk I did a few times in the last couple of years. It's called, um, what the hell is it called? Uh, the five, uh, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, but it's basically the five, I, I imagine this fictitious world called Blairtopia. And in Blairtopia, <laughs> every, the, all the creative firms thrive because they have to live by my laws. And my, I call it the five constraints. Um, and the first constraint, so, all firms succeed because they follow my laws like they're the laws of physics. And the first law is no exit. I say to you, uh, you, okay, imagine a scenario where, imagine you're running your business and you can never sell and you can never retire. Now just think about that for a minute. What are the implications of that? And we do some exercises around that briefly. But if you just think about that, if I said to you, if I, because if I had the power to do this to you, Chris, and all of your listeners, I would invoke that power. I would wave my magic wand. And I would say, invoke my ability for you to never be able to sell your business and never be able to retire. And if you had to face that constraint, there's so many things that you would do differently about how you run your business and about how you live your life. And especially as people get older, as they get into their 50s and certainly in their 60s, I see as soon as you start to have one eye on the exit, you quit making the difficult decisions. Right. Right. And then mm. you, you delude yourself and you keep working extra hard, delude yourself to thinking that one, one day I'll get this right or one day there'll be a payoff. And then, uh, you know, I'm just going to, and then it's in the last five years, I'm not going to change too much. Right. And you can just see it. You can just see it. So if you commit to the idea that you are never going to sell and you are never going to retire, it will be transformative. And I've, I've made I that. that. I wrote a 3,000 word blog post on that mm. a couple of years ago. It's called a mission with no exit, and I am—I'm uh, determined. I'm not selling this business, and I'm not—I'm uh, not retiring. And it's the—it's mo the most liberating decision I have ever made. That's awesome. And now you're—you're you're making me rethink my approach here, but uh, it's a lot of food for thought. Now I think we have like three minutes left with you, so I'm going to fire these last little questions. Okay? Yep. All right. Um, I think you've already answered this question from CGM, but in case he's tuning in, he's like, any new advice? I think you've given a ton of new advice in this conversation already. Um, David said, what are some uh, business and learning resources do you recommend? Of course, the win without pitching system, but yeah. uh, anything else? I just finished reading Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, which I think was published. So Zero to One, Notes on Startups and Building the Future. I think it was published in 2014. It's a really easy read. <clears throat> I think it might possibly, I need a few more weeks to keep thinking about it, but it might possibly be the single best business book I've ever read. Oh, okay then. And and this one's phrased kind of awkwardly, so uh, let's see how you want to answer this one. This is from Anmar Matrude. I hope I'm saying that right. How to get clients for startup agencies, how to get the first 20% of the clients. Yeah, so you think you hear the words win without pitching and you think, you know, it's uh, there's no moral issue around pitching as far as I'm concerned. It's a function of like free market economics. You know, we, we as you say, you know, it's written in the rules because because the buyer has all the all the power in the relationship. Right. Um but it's you don't I know a lot of people get indignant when when other firms pitch and that's that's a it's like there's no moral issue here. Mhm. Mm um, so one of the things you have to, when you're starting out, sometimes you have to pitch. Now I think there are alternatives to pitching, um, like agreeing to work for free 
for to build the portfolio or at a deep discount or a 100% money back guarantee. But I would suggest that anytime you do that, anytime you're compromising you know, the fee that you were charged because you want the work to build your experience in the portfolio, your only obligation is to say so with the client, right? So say to the client, listen, we would typically charge you know, $20,000 for this, but we're new, I really like this project, I'd love to have this in the portfolio. Um, if I did this for you for half price, would we have a deal to work together or something like that? So I, so the mistake is not in discounting or even doing it for free. The mistake is in not having that open and direct conversation with the client about what your intentions are. Like we have five core values in our, in our, uh, in our company. And one of them is say what you're thinking. So, and, and that's another constraint in Blairtopia of the five constraints. If I could wave the magic wand, Anytime you're in a dealing with a client or a prospective client, just say what you're thinking. Take a minute to think about how you would phrase it kindly, but say what you're thinking because so many of your sales problems stem from the fact that you're not saying what you're thinking. And then you, you're thinking no, you're saying yes, you're holding it in, you're bottling it up, but you're, you're allowing all this emotion to build, and then you create all these problems for yourself downstream. Just say what you're thinking. Uh, do you have resources uh, on how somebody can learn how to say what they're thinking? Because I love that idea, and I, I practice that myself, but do you have a resource that people can look into after yeah. this? It's actually pretty easy. So I wrote an article called, I think it's called Kind Ruthlessness. That's the name of our core value. Mm. Or maybe it's called Say What You're Thinking. So if your <laughs> listeners go to winwithoutpitching.com and in the search, there's about 120,000 words of free advice on the website, including a free version of the manifesto that you can read online if you don't mind clicking. Um, so you punch into the search window, um, say what you're thinking or kind ruthlessness, you'll find it. I'm Blair Enns and you are listening to The Future. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn for composing our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. While you're there, do us a solid and leave us a review. Your comments will help guide future programming, and hey, it'll help us with our rankings. Can't get enough content? You're in luck. We have over 150 episodes on our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash thefutureishere. Make sure you don't miss out on upcoming events, workshops, live broadcasts, and webinars by signing up for our newsletter. Go to our site, thefuture.com, and click on the email sign-up button. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefutureishere. Thanks for listening. See you in the next episode.